Hey everyone, today I'd like to introduce you to a show that I think you're really going to enjoy if you like history and a compelling account of past events, as I'm sure most of you do since you're listening to this podcast, then I highly recommend The Saga of World War II. The Saga is a chronological account of the Second World War that takes you from the causes of the war through its most pivotal events in easy-to-digest 25-30 to 30 minute episodes. I've been listening while I do chores around the house to keep my brain nice and stimulated, so if this sounds like something you'd be into, just search The Saga of World War II wherever you get your podcasts. Michael's a big history buff, as you guys know, and he's been hooked we highly recommend this show, and we hope you'll give it a shot. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all podcast streaming platforms. And stay tuned for their promotion at the end of our podcast. Hello there, fellow Flyers. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Welcome to part two of Qantas Flight 72. We're going to hop straight back into our interview with Captain Sullivan, and then we're going to discuss what exactly happened on Flight 72, how it made flying safer. We'll chat with Tess and hit a few stories from the world of airline news. Please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thank you all for your support. We greatly appreciate your vote for the continued existence of PCPC through your Patreon help. Also check out betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod for your online therapy needs. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. You get 10% off your first month and you get to work on having the healthiest brain possible. Sounds great, right? Thanks to BetterHelp. Now without further delay, let's rejoin our interview with Captain Kevin Sullivan. I think in the book you also mention about how these alarms are going off. You still have to land the plane. You're aware that there's, you know, serious injuries in the cabin. So you got to land the plane and these alarms are just going off the entire time. You can't even turn them off. That must have just added to the workload and to the distraction in the cockpit. It's, uh, again, it's, it's an overload situation. And we don't, this, this event cannot be replicated in the simulator. It should be but it's not uh, for pilots to see, Hey, this is the worst thing that can happen to you. Mm-hmm. One of the worst things, um, especially, you know, the distraction of all those warnings and cautions continually going off. Even after we landed and shut the engines down, we were still getting stall warnings. Um, uh, once we were safely on the ground. And again, you know, we're looking at each other and going, what, what is going on? We yeah. don't know. We still don't even know until, um, we access the um, post maintenance report that the and, and everything that went wrong or failed was listed there, and it's pages and pages of stuff coming out, and we're just going, "Holy cow, you know we're lucky to be here, <laughs> yeah, because it was a huge a huge um, computer dump, and if the plane is only controlled by computers and they're dumping. Well, it's up to the pilot to save the day. And if you don't have the training, 
you may not be able to. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the the title of your book is No Man's Land, but I love how versatile that title is. Like, it seems like it could be applicable to many aspects of Flight 72 and your life afterwards. For instance, you could be referencing the helplessness you felt during those pitch downs when the computer wouldn't surrender control or the unprecedented approach you had to make to Learmonth or the emotional state you found yourself in after Flight 72. I just what did that title mean to you? How did you come up with that? Oh, when I think about No Man's Land, the, the obvious uh, image is that desolate battleground between two opposing armies in World War I. Uh, it's uncharted. It's dangerous. Uh, every step could spell the end of your life. Uh, you're at high alert for the whole time that you're in No Man's Land. Mm-hmm. And if you continue to go through no man's land, <laughs> you are going to be affected later in your life. Uh, it's that uh, extreme stress uh, situation that that you're exposed to, and uh, there's no there's no map. There's no way to get out of it um, because it changes all the time. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's. So as you said, there are so many facets in this story where we were in no man's land, where I was in no man's land. And because I don't know what's going on and I have to try to survive. And even now, uh, post Qantas 72, uh, as a PTSD sufferer, every day is, okay, what am I going to do? How, how will I survive and manage this day? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's um, yeah, that that's pretty much where I came up with with that um, that title. I think it aptly describes your uh, condition and where you're at. I, that's one aspect of the book that I really liked was how honest you were in the book and your about your life post Flight seventy two. Feel like you could have easily ended the book in Learmonth and said, "Hey, I was the hero, Captain. Everybody lived happily ever after. Celebrate me!" But you didn't do that. You got really honest about what you've been going through, and you really gave us a window into the world of someone processing a traumatic event. And I think that's going to be useful. I think a lot of listeners will uh, be able to relate to that story. Why was it important to include that aspect of the story? Well, I think uh, it's more it's more courageous to admit that, hey, I've been damaged by this event or I've been damaged by war or I've been damaged by responding to a multiple car crash or uh, a a bad apartment fire. Whoever you are, whatever your job is, you you may be exposed to these traumatic images, these traumatic events where you may be in a survival situation and you get a choice. You, you can either hide it, which for males usually in, 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 in historical uh, context, you just have to look at the History Channel to see how these young uh, soldiers that are now older relate to what happened to them 40, 50, 60 years ago. And you see how emotional they can get in their interviews. And I thought, you know, they're suffering but it's, I think it's because they've held it back. They don't talk about it because nobody will understand. You weren't there, uh, so I'll just keep it to myself. But I think 
that's the worst thing you can do. So I'm doing the opposite. I'm like George Costanza. You know, I'm not going to keep it quiet. I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to do the opposite. I, I, I don't want this to bite me in the, in the, in the bottom uh, later in my life. So to try and deal with it openly now mm-hmm. may, may help me in the future. And it is more, uh, to me, it is more courageous to say, yeah, I got a problem. I need help. And to seek that assistance because you may need to. Yeah. I feel like you were just very sincere and genuine about it. And I feel like a lot of people feel ashamed of times that they, you know, feel off, whether it's dealing with feelings of depression or anxiety. And we've been, I feel like I grew up in a world where I was kind of taught, oh, if you feel bad, hide it from people. And I feel like your book is really going to help people get through things like that they'll feel relatable and you know you didn't do anything wrong if you're feeling those emotions and being honest about them is going to help us like address those so that's one aspect about your book that i think is pretty important yeah and i think the uh the important thing is that you know these these are not just psychological injuries these are physiological uh, changes in your body brought about by the psychological trauma that you've experienced. But there's a physiological side to depression and PTSD that also needs to be addressed. And uh, that's quite difficult to do on your own. Mm-hmm. Frankly, from what I watched online and learned about you through the documentaries I watched, I thought you never flew again. But after the crash, you actually flew for a pretty decent amount of time, several years. And you mentioned a few times that you were sharing a cockpit with a younger first officer on a flight. And they'd seem at ease during moderate turbulence while you felt a little spike of adrenaline. Is it fair to say that with Flight 72, you learn the intricacies of how this automation works, how it's flawed at times? And with this new knowledge, it understandably made you uncomfortable being on an A330 and that these younger pilots kind of had a ignorance is bliss attitude that you couldn't have anymore. Yeah, ignorance is bliss, but knowledge is power. Yeah. And, and so my knowledge now, uh, once I did go back to work, and I took eight months off, and I was hoping in that time that the uh, investigation by the uh, ATSB here, uh, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, would be concluded because they had all the information, they had all the data, they had the cockpit voice recorder, and they had three survivors that gave eyewitness accounts. So I thought, okay, it, yeah, eight months, better get back uh, and see if I can can manage this. And the week before I went back to work, Air France 447 was lost. So I had to have a little bit of a think about <laughs> about that. And people were asking me, are you still okay to go back to work? I said, yeah, well, what happened? Oh, we don't know. Okay, <laughs> well, I can't base a decision on hearsay. So, yeah, yeah I'm coming back to work. The, I think in the turbulence, it took me a while also. So all this uh, going back to work was a road of discovery because now – Lots of things have changed uh, internally with me. Uh, I wasn't afraid of flying uh, as such, but I was afraid of mass casualties again and having to deal with uh, that aspect, which was very unpleasant um, once we did get the plane on the ground. Uh, it, it basically made me responsibility phobic. I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but later on I did. Mm-hmm. And... Um, also, the pitch downs, 
even though I've been out of control uh, in my fighter jet experience, but I put it there. And I've been thrown around, but I've put it there. I've put the plane, uh, I've departed the flight envelope for a reason, and I can recover for a reason. For what happened to us was, it was an ambush by the flight control computers. It was, uh, you know, a cowardly uh, sucker punch in the back of the head where the plane pitched down. Mm-hmm. And to be at 1G in 1G steady state flight, next thing, the plane is pitching down to the negative G limit, which is minus one um, in two seconds. That's a huge force. And this isn't a, like I said, this isn't a floating uh, NASA uh, astronaut training in the padded airplane. This is a violent maneuver and um, took me a while again to realize that in turbulence, uh, the autopilot is trying to maintain altitude and the plane may be pushed off that altitude in the course of traversing a turbulent area. But what does the autopilot do? It doesn't, it's not gentle. It pushes the, the nose back down uh, to altitude. And in doing that, you get a little bit of light in the pants feeling. And that was a trigger for me of what happened to us on the 72. So uh, if you didn't have that experience and you're, you're a young first officer sitting in the side going, why is Kev grabbing the instrument panel? Why yeah. is he, why is he on full alert? And it's that trigger of the negative G that I felt. And it, my body was just re rewired to react that way. Yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to me. And it took me again, another a year or two to figure out that this was hap- This had happened to me. So that, uh, as well as, yeah, it's ignorance is bliss, mm-hmm. but I knew whenever I was in bad weather, um, historically probes get blocked with ice or they get frozen mm-hmm. and things, a uh, signal is still sent into the flight control computers and into the air data computers. So it may react to that. And now I'm going to be maybe in another situation where I have to try and interpret what all these things mean and take action. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't a, eventually, you know, I did it for eight years. Um, I stopped three times. The fourth time was my final time. Mm-hmm. And that was at the eight year mark. Um, but it was becoming, you know, my passion for life was becoming death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And I had to do something to change that. So basically I self-reported that I'm not okay. And that's, where it went from there. Well, I think that was a courageous and honest thing to do. I think you uh, handled that situation correctly. You flew for a long time, flew for eight years, and then you made the calculation that, hey, I you know, keep on feeling this spike and I, I don't feel like I'm in tip-top condition. So instead of just hiding that, you did the proper thing and we're honest. Yeah, and I think at least in this profession of being an airline pilot, Admitting that you've got a problem basically means you, you're going to be grounded until it's sorted out. And if you're grounded, your pay is going to be effective. You know, pilots are people too. They've got uh, marriages. They've, they've got uh, mortgages. They've got bills to pay. If you are stood down or you are grounded because you've admitted that you have a problem, then your pay is going to be affected and your lifestyle is going to be affected. And yeah, it's quite threatening, but 
I feel you have to do it and try and resolve it and get back, then get back into the cockpit. Yeah. Um, from reading your book, you made a lot of allusions to like movies. Are you a movie buff? <laughs> I think like when people learn about uh, Qantas Flight 72, I feel like the most iconic moment is when you say that, I'll let you say it. <laughs> well, I picked a bad day to give up sniffing glue. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like that is a, you see it in a lot of different crashes that when people are stressed out in the cockpit, anything you can do to inject a little bit of humor kind of, you know, maybe helped tamp down some of that adrenaline boost everybody was riding. Well, this is, uh, you know, this is from my military days and the Navy and fighter training or fighter flying, you know, around the ship. We didn't have the internet. Um, we had movies <laughs> that mm -hmm. were, you know, the old real movies, uh, film movies. And so my first cruise was Flying High Airplane, which we saw probably, I don't know, I hate to say 80, 100 times. <laughs> <laughs> and the second cruise movie was Caddyshack. So mm -hmm. you can imagine the whole, the whole ship is talking because they're all watching it too. They're all talking in this same sort of language. Yeah. And you start, you start interjecting those lines into situations, everyday situations uh, in the squadron when you're flying, uh, after you're flying, uh, in extremis. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It does break uh, that tension level. And, you know, for me to do that to my crew as we were preparing to try and land at Learmonth, it's like, okay, if, if Kev's making jokes, then he's got to be okay. So I, I'm okay. Yeah, so, they probably um, looked at you like a father figure. You're like the captain, and they're like, if he's okay with this, then maybe I can bring my scare level down a little bit. Yeah, it does. I think it does assist a little bit there um, to reduce the tension because you're actually thinking about something else except about what just happened. And it's like, why is he saying that? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, it, it's a short distraction, and it might then allow you to concentrate better on other things well uh one other thing i wanted to talk about was it must have been kind of frustrating for you to have lived with Qantas flight 72 known all the facets of what happened with that and then in 2018 2019 you see the whole max 8 situation unfold and it feels like airlines aircraft manufacturers might have missed out on this resounding lesson that flight 72 could have been and that Automation, that was one thing about the book that I thought was interesting, too, is you don't limit your discussion of automation just to planes. You talk about how automation's bleeding into other uh, industries as well. I just thought maybe you could talk about that for a little bit. What was your reaction to seeing the Max 8 uh, planes crash? Well, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not endorsed on the 737 uh, at all, but it's a manual, you know, it's a conventional uh, aircraft in that the pilot's controls are linked to the control services by cables. So when I read about the first one uh, with the Lion Air crash, I thought, okay, what's going on here? It's a MAX. What's a MAX? And they talk about MCAS. I, okay, what's MCAS? So I have to educate myself. But then I see, okay, this is an automated system. It's very powerful. And then as time goes on, the pilots didn't know about it. They didn't know it existed. And then Boeing is starting to say, well, we didn't think the pilots needed to know about that. But then it starts coming out about self-certification uh, that Boeing was able to 
self-certify that system, uh, and the FAA accepted it, whereas I guess now in hindsight, that wasn't a good uh, decision or good business practice. Mm-hmm. So to see, to see Boeing, who is very pilot, pro-pilot um, in their designs, to deviate from that, uh, with this MCAS system and the way that it was introduced and the way that it was, I guess, hidden from uh, the operators and the pilots, you think, what's going on here? And then Ethiopian Air goes in and they, they knew it was there. They did a simulator about it, but it was too powerful. And you look at the similarities between the Qantas 72 and these MCAS, sure, one's fly-by-wire, one is not, but... MCAS is controlled by the flight control computer and angle of attack is the critical um, value that it is monitoring to decide whether to activate it or not. And if you only have one angle of attack sensor feeding information in there and it fails, then there you get an activation of MCAS and it's very powerful in, in the way that it works. So an automated system blindsides the pilots for erroneous, an erroneous value of angle of attack, and they're fighting for their lives, and they weren't able to survive. Yeah. So I, uh, and, and it doesn't matter where you are or where you're from or what country you're from. These were pilots fighting for their lives, trying to save the day, and uh, I had to correct a few of my colleagues to say, hey, w- what would you have done, you know? Are you that well trained that you could pull the rabbit out of the hat? Yeah. Uh, because these guys couldn't. And that's really what it is. And how are you going to do that if you've never seen it before? Mm-hmm. So it, that, then the, it follows that pilots need to be trained yeah. on these automated systems failures and how to deal with it. And the manufacturers, both of them now, Airbus and Boeing, have to admit, okay, yeah, these systems can fail, and here's how they fail. And show us in the simulator. Show the pilots how to, to do with the simulator. So if it happens in the airplane, they're prepared. Yeah. And those are all the similarities uh, that I think. And it was very disappointing to see that now that as more and more uh, comes out about the way Boeing was doing business uh, and, and getting this airplane out there, you just think, oh, it's yeah. It was disappointing from that corporate culture side to say that they had shifted, uh, apparently shifted their priority mm-hmm. uh, in this design. So yeah, it was uh, it was sad and disappointing. Yeah, for sure. it seems like you've had that constant message that pilots need to be trained for all situations that they might find themselves in, and in your situation and in their situation, you were thrust into a position where you were not trained for that. No, and, you know, we go back to my, my Navy experience and my fighter experience. You know, that, that's extreme flying. And you're flying your airplane at, outside its operating envelope at some stages. But you're, you learn to manage risk. You learn how to manage your airplane. Uh, and you hone your manual flying skills, which we don't do in commercial flying. It's automatics it's autopilot it's automation airlines want an airplane that's almost plug and play hey give me your course i'll train the pilots i can get them into the into the airplane and now i can fly passengers around 
-hmm. it's protected and I'll make money. I mean, it's a pretty simple uh, summary of what, why these planes are starting to exist now. And yes, they have um, enhanced safety. They're easier to fly, but when they misbehave, they're harder to save. Yeah, it makes sense. When I was reading your book, No Man's Land, I was struck by how when you walk into the passenger cabin once you land in Learmonth, you seem to communicate that you felt guilt or heartbreak at the injuries on Flight 72, like you were responsible for it. And I think that's understandable in the moment, but when I read that part, I couldn't help to but want to like jump through the book and shake you and be like, you saved those people. <laughs> They're there. You're there because of the choices you made. And it was the malfunctioning Thanks. computer that did it to those people, not you. And I was just wondering, have you been able to change your perception of the event over the years compared to where you were then and where you are now? Uh, when we landed, uh, and I eventually uh, had the time to go into uh, the cabin and walk, I call it the walk that changed my life, um, and I go into that detail a lot uh, in the book. Uh, I didn't feel guilty, but I certainly felt the heavy weight of responsibility uh, that I'm the captain. Uh, we're in we're in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> yeah. and I'm still the captain. No one can relieve me of that responsibility, and I, you know, I shouldered that responsibility. Uh, but as I uh, walked through the carnage that was. Uh, inside my airplane, uh, it's very confronting. Mm -hmm. So no, I didn't feel guilty. Um, but certainly any pilot, uh, that's worth their medal will self critique. And we had that time to the three pilots together to say, could, did I miss something? Did you miss something? Did we miss anything? And once we saw the list of malfunction, uh, malfunctioning or failed systems, we came to the conclusion that no, we did everything right to be sitting there on the ground. Yeah, uh, we got the plane on the ground. So yeah, we didn't didn't feel that guilt, but um, certainly to see um, people on the floor with a neck brace, people uh, passengers crying. Um, in shock. Yeah. My crew, seven of nine of my cabin crew were injured. One of the pilots was injured. Um, and the heartbreak as the further back I went and the G force was more, uh, severe. That's where I could see the, the destruction, uh, not only to the airplane fittings in the cabin and the ceiling, but to the people mm -hmm. and, people's heads were basically thrown into and through they cracked the plastic above the seat and if you that's aviation grade plastic yeah and if you think about well how do i how do i bust that with my head well you stick a rocket motor under your bottom with uh the same thrust as your body weight and mm -hmm. light it off and that's what's going to happen and not only are you going to break a hole in it but you're going to have spinal uh, injuries. Mm -hmm. And this can also happen, just like I described before, with the autopilot in turbulence. Um, a big deviation from altitude will generate a bigger response from the autopilot to push the nose down. And you can get almost the same um, 
force generated just by the autopilot in in turbulence. So the moral of the story is keep your seatbelt fast as much as you can. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I am going Mm -hmm. to keep my seatbelt on at all times from now on. Well, you know, and in this case, um, it was a full airplane. We had just finished the meal service when I went back into the flight deck. People are going to the toilet. Um, People got up to stretch. People Mm -hmm. went to visit people, uh, friends in other parts of the cabin. Um, is it their fault? Uh, I don't think so uh, as much because it was without warning. Yeah. So you may have just come back from the toilet and sat in your seat and the next thing your head's busted through the, the, the ceiling, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I always keep my seatbelt on, uh, but I still go to the toilet. I don't dilly dally around very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get back into my seat. Yeah. So, um, that is that is the, one of the morals of the story. However, you got to go to the toilet, and you you know you can't just sit there entombed in your seat for eight or nine hours either. Yeah, definitely. I feel like use common sense. Keep your seatbelt on when you're in your seat. If you have to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. But uh, keep your seatbelt on when you get back to your seat because you never know what might happen. That was one more thing I wanted to ask you, which is uh, what is your relationship to flying now? I assume when you fly now, you're a passenger, do you feel comfortable doing it? Um, is it fun? How do you feel about it? I, I was never afraid of, of flying. Uh, that was not the reason uh, I stopped. Uh, as I said before, I became, uh, finally figured out I was responsibility phobic. So if I'm not the pilot in command and I'm sitting in a passenger seat and I don't have to worry about anything except keep my seatbelt on and 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 having my own personal safety plan that's that's fine so uh, i always said to my pilots well i'm on your flight if you got any problems give me a call i'll be back in the seat <laughs> you know and yeah. uh and they just look at me <laughs> a little bit in uh, a little bit worrying because i had a reputation of having lots of things uh Lots of events happening, which I had to deal with. I was certainly challenged a lot more in my commercial career than I was with, with malfunctions than I was with, in my military career. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd feel you know very much more comfortable on a plane if I knew you were just on it anywhere. Yeah, that's what everybody says. I said, <laughs> well, yeah, I I can't start my own airline, and <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's I, I don't I'm not afraid of flying, and um, I I still love being in the air and above the earth and but it's nicer to be in a window seat somewhere yeah in a window seat <laughs> in, with, in the cabin yeah with a nice cold beer in your hand well something yeah so <laughs> it's it's a it's a lot different than being uh, in the in the pointy end with the window seat and the responsibilities uh that being there you know, entails and i think if your listeners do read the book, you'll see, wow, he had to shoulder a lot of responsibility, a lot of stress, a lot of um, uh, decision-making, and that can be a burnout. Yeah. No, I think the book is super interesting. It's called No Man's Land. It's now available on Amazon, Kindle, iBooks, Audible Australia. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of it. I think it's an important book get an inside view with what happened with flight 72 and you get the inside view of what happened afterwards. And I thought you were very sincere and genuine and honest about it. I think it's an important book that people should check out. 
Thanks, Michael. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks again, Captain Kevin Sullivan, for speaking with us today. It was an honor to get to talk to you, and thanks for spending so much time with us. Thank you, Michael. Well, that was our interview with Captain Kevin Sullivan. What did you think, Tess? I thought it was great. I thought he was so impressive. I thought he was really intelligent and his demeanor was very calm. And I feel like as a passenger, I would feel very comforted having a captain like him in the cockpit. Yeah. As I said in the interview, I'd feel more comfortable with him around. Uh, He was very honest. I felt like he was very sincere about what happened to him post flight 72. And I really appreciate him talking with us. His book, No Man's Land was a fantastic read and I encourage all of you to check it out. So let's get to what happened. Why exactly did those two pitch down events occur on flight 72? The plane was cruising along at 37,000 feet en route to Perth, clear weather, all seemed normal. And then twice the A330 violently pitched down causing 119 injuries led to an incredibly stressful and dangerous flight for 315 human beings. So what caused those two pitch downs? As we've learned recently, these newer Airbus planes use fly-by-wire controls. The pilots use a side stick, make inputs via the side stick, and then the flight control computers take those signals it receives from the pilot, and it moves the flight control surfaces to give pilots their desired result. These new Airbus planes are also programmed with flight envelope protection modes. These exist to help aid in safe flight. Basically, it keeps the pilots from flying at too high of a speed, too low of a speed, or turning, banking the plane at too steep of an angle. You've heard us mention angle of attack when we talked about MCAS and the Boeing MAX planes. Well, there's a protection mode on the A330 for having too great of an angle of attack. If the computer gets information and senses that the plane is in trouble, flying too fast or the angle of attack is too great, these protection modes kick in to try and save the day. It's kind of like if you're riding around on the coolest bicycle ever, a bicycle with a computer built inside of it that had all kinds of sensors telling the bike computer your speed, balance, wind resistance, tire pressure. And if the bicycle ever gathered from its sensors that you had lost your balance and were about to fall over, training wheels would suddenly pop out and you wouldn't fall over. You just maybe have a flashback to being four years old again. So how do the flight computers get their information on the conditions that an aircraft is flying in at any given moment? Well, the Airbus A330 uses three ADAROOS. ADAROOS is an acronym for Air Data Inertial Reference Unit. The three ADAROOS get information from sensors on the plane. They gather data on angle of attack, temperature, airspeed, attitude, ground speed, heading, pressure altitude, all kinds of vital information that the pilots and flight computers need to fly the plane. So sensors send info to the ADAROOS. The ADAROOS digitize this information and pass it along to the flight computers and pilots. These ADAROOS communicate with the flight control computers by sending them 32-bit words. What's a 32-bit word? A 32-bit word is basically a sequence of 32 numbers in binary. They can only be a zero or a one. The first eight zeros or ones in the 32-bit word serve as the label. It's the Adaru telling the flight computer, hey man, check out this sweet sequence of one and zeros. I'm sending you info on airspeed. 
For a different sequence of one and zeros in the first eight spaces, the Adaroo might be saying, hey there, my digital friend, this next info is angle of attack. So the first eight spaces in the 32-bit word is the label, what type of information it is. I'm not gonna go through the entire 32-bit word, but another 19 of the 32 spaces in the word is the actual measured data. So the first eight spaces might communicate altitude, and then another 19 space chunk of the word tells the flight computer the value 37,000. So with the label of altitude and the number 37,000, the flight computer puts them together and thinks, hey, our altitude must be at 37,000 feet. Now, what does this have to do with flight 72? Well, at 12.40 p.m., two minutes before the first pitch down, Adaroo 1 on Flight 72 started firing off bad data, corrupted data, to the flight control computer affecting the captain's flight display. This brought on the disconnection of the autopilot, stall warnings, overspeed warnings, fault messages, the crazy bouncing around of the altitude and speed on Captain Sullivan's flight display. Adaroo 1 mislabeled a 32-bit word. It mixed the altitude data with a label of angle of attack. So it took the data information for Flight 72's altitude, but it sent it off with a label of angle of attack. Due to a flaw in the algorithm that was supposed to catch mistakes like this, the flight computer treated the information from Adaroo 1 as valid information that was communicating that the angle of attack was suddenly 50.6 degrees, according to Adaroo 1. The flight computer took the angle of attack information from Adaroo 1 at 50.6 degrees, and Adaroo 2, which was at 2.3 degrees, averaged them together and believed that Flight 72 had an angle of attack of 26 degrees. This erroneous information triggered a double dose of flight envelope protection modes that kicked in. One protection mode, high angle of attack protection, caused the elevator on the back of the plane to move the nose of the plane down four degrees. A second protection mode, anti-pitch-up compensation, which tries to compensate for the A330's tendency to pitch up when traveling at a high speed and high angle of attack, this was triggered as well at the same exact time as the other protection mode. This anti-pitch-up compensation caused the elevator to move the nose down 6 degrees. So add the 4 degrees nose down from one protection, 6 degrees nose down from the other, and you get a sudden 10-degree pitch down that came without warning to everyone on the plane. The sudden shift in gravitational forces slammed passengers not wearing their seatbelts or standing throughout the plane into the ceiling, causing a number of serious injuries. The second pitch down was less severe, only one of the protection modes, anti-pitch-up compensation, kicked in after another spike of bad angle of attack data was able to get through the flawed algorithm that was supposed to weed out this corrupted data. This wasn't the first time that an Adaroo entered failure mode. Two years prior to Flight 72, on September 12, 2006, on Qantas Flight 68, a flight from Hong Kong to Perth, on the same plane used for Flight 72, Adaroo 1 had a bad data spike that resulted in a number of fault messages, stall warnings, and overspeed warnings. The pilots of Flight 68 had Autopilot 2 engaged, and Autopilot 2 never disconnected. The pilots noticed that a fault light illuminated on the overhead panel for the air data reference 1. They turned it off, and the warning ceased, and the flight continued on normally. 
On December 27, 2008, almost three months after Flight 72, on Qantas Flight 71, a flight from Perth to Singapore, on a different plane than the previous two incidents, Adaru 1 started acting up again, churning out corrupted data. On this flight, Autopilot 1 was engaged. It disconnected, and a number of fault messages popped up on their eCam display. The pilots, familiar with the story of Flight 72, quickly turned off both the Air Data Reference 1 and Inertial Reference 1. They returned to Perth, and none of the flight controls were affected. One thing that stymied investigators, and they never reached a conclusive answer on, was why these Adaroos had these bad data spikes. Extensive research and testing was done over the years to try and figure out what had triggered these units into operating improperly. They thought maybe there was a software bug or high or low temperatures were affecting the unit. Maybe it was electromagnetic interference from cell phones or some other source. Maybe it was too much vibration in the aircraft. They even noticed that there was a naval communications base near Learmonth. And because all three flights happened in close proximity, Maybe this was affecting the Adaroos. In the end, after a number of controlled tests, they couldn't arrive at one explanation. One more interesting theory is that a high-energy particle from outer space impacted the Adaroo, causing a malfunction. Both Adaroos from the two planes that had the three bad data spike occurrences were relatively close in serial number. So in the end, it may have just been a hardware weakness, a defect in the unit that caused the incidents. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau released its final report on December 19th, 2011. It's very detailed, and I used it in Captain Sullivan's book for the research for this episode. In the report, it stated, The in-flight upset on October 7th, 2008 occurred due to the combination of a design limitation in the flight control primary computer software of the Airbus A330, A340, and a failure affecting one of the aircraft's three air data inertial reference units. The design limitation meant that in a very rare and specific situation, multiple spikes in angle of attack data from one of the Adaroos could result in the flight control primary computers commanding the aircraft to pitch down. So how did the incident on Flight 72 make flying safer for us all today? Well, it awoken operators of Airbus planes to a potential hardware weakness that existed in their air data inertial reference units. Airlines flying the A330 and A340 quickly came up with a procedure for how to respond when fault messages start popping up and showing errors with the Adaroo. Pilots are instructed to turn off both the inertial and air data portions of the Adaroo if a similar occurrence were to happen. Also in 2010, Airbus changed their supplier of Adaroos from Northrop Grumman to Honeywell. Secondly, Airbus modified their programming in their flight computers, addressing the flawed algorithm and preventing data spikes of bad angle of attack data to be accepted as valid. Third, Airbus started testing their verification software to include bad data spikes, which it hadn't done in the past. Lastly, this was an important and painful lesson about the dangers of not wearing your seatbelt on a plane. We shouldn't live in fear, we should enjoy our flights, but using common sense and keeping your seatbelt on while seated is always a smart move. At any moment, severe turbulence or some other event may occur, and if you have your seatbelt on, you may prevent yourself from sustaining a serious injury. 
At the time of the first pitch down, over 60 passengers didn't have their seatbelt on. This accounted for a large share of the series injuries on Flight 72. So wear your seatbelt, peeps. Tess, are you going to wear your seatbelt? Absolutely, Michael. That's good. So Tess, what did you think about the story of Flight 72? Seemed like not exactly a walk in the park for those guys in the cockpit, huh? Yeah, they really had their work cut out for them. It kind of reminded me of the Max 8 situation where the plane was reacting to faulty data. Yeah, it seemed like a nightmare to me. I mean, it seemed like all these alarms are going off. They're contradicting each other. It seemed like they had lost control, and that's scary. Yeah, totally. But the thing that really stuck out to me that we discussed in the last episode was just the stellar communication in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. I felt like they... The captain, particularly who Captain Sullivan, who you spoke with, was just so exemplary in his ability to communicate with his co-pilots and come up with a game plan, but also check in continuously with them and mm-hmm. keep passengers at ease. Um, and I loved that he was also a movie buff. And <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I thought I liked little elements of the story, like. Even the second officer realizing that his ears were popping once they started descending. They just had to like think on their feet because they didn't know what the situation was because they hadn't been trained to deal with a situation like this. It was just like, surprise, you're in this situation, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I like that little minute detail that he's like noticing his ears are popping and he's like, oh man, I guess we should um, manually control the pressurization. I guess we're going to have to figure that one out. I liked that too. And that actually reminded me of the um, Helios flight that we discussed. Mm -hmm. It seems like they had to deal with a lot, but they were really taking it in stride. Yeah, they had good communication, as you said. I feel for Captain Sullivan. I thought with all the alarms going off, trying to figure out what's going on with the plane, it seems like he was almost like taking a calculus test and having some annoying person like jab him in the ribs every 10 seconds to pull his attention away. I imagine if you're trying to figure out a problem, you just hear alarms going off that you know are incorrect, given that the plane was in flight. That just must have been made the situation even more difficult. The thing that really stood out to me about him was how mindful he was and how self-aware he was in that moment, Mm -hmm. in a moment where you would be so overwhelmed and flooded with anxiety. He was able to to reflect and think, this is my body's fight or flight response kicking in, and I have to take a few deep breaths and take control of this situation. Yeah, and even just drop a few jokes, you know, say, I picked the wrong day to stop sniffing glue. Picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. It's almost like he's kind of like hiding that on the inside. He's panicky, but he knows he needs to be the leader for his co-pilots and be like, guys, I'm making jokes. You can laugh. Mm -hmm. This is a stressful situation, but let's get our body back under control. It must have been tough just to be seated there, flooded with adrenaline, having to deal with anxiety and not be able to, you know, run down the street or be on an exercise bike and get that adrenaline out of your body. But I think we've seen in the past that injecting humor into the cockpit, I think United Flight 232, Denny Fitch says something like, We'll have some beers when this is over. Trying to, you know, tamp down some of the anxieties in the cockpit. Yeah, definitely. I feel like making jokes kind of, not to overanalyze it, but I feel like it kind of indirectly communicates like we have a chance. There's hope. We're going to get out of this. We're going to have beers when we get to the, yeah. when we land. It's it's a good way to like keep morale high and, and keep that sense of hope. 
Yeah, being people that like study these stories all the time, I always like that element because I feel like it just lets you know that these aren't robots in the cockpit. They're human beings that have a sense of humor and mm-hmm. just that sense of humanity has always been kind of interesting. What did you think about the panicked passenger that came to the back of the plane with the life vest around their neck? I really identified with that passenger. That was definitely the passenger that I would be probably under that, yeah. like that type of circumstance. No, I imagine if everybody had that thought i'm gonna die everybody's full of adrenaline and everybody's reacting differently and for that person they're like oh my god something horrible's happening we're over the ocean better put on my vest better inflate it and then they couldn't breathe and got panicked and ran to the back of the plane but luckily they were helped out yeah right it's that flight response that captain sullivan was talking about yeah an interesting item included in the atsb report is that as of the end of 2009 A330s and A340s had accumulated 28 million flight hours collectively. This incident on Qantas Flight 72, where bad data from one of the Adaru units resulted in the moving of the plane's elevators, was the only time it's ever occurred during those 28 million flight hours. So this is a very unique and highly improbable event, according to the report. I still thought it was pretty odd that three different times, all on Qantas flights, all in the same region of the world, either flying to or from Perth, Adaru corrupted data spikes occurred. The report stated that only three times in 128 million hours of unit operation did an Adaru enter a failure mode where bad data spikes got through to the flight computer. As much as that statistic only three times in 128 million flight hours has an impact on us all, and we can't really dispute it, it is strange that this supposedly improbable event occurred three times, all three times on Qantas flights, all three times above the Indian Ocean, all in roughly the same two-year period. What do you think? Yeah, that's very strange. Highly improbable, but it happened. I wonder if there's a cover-up at work here. Probably. I didn't include it in the explanation section because I didn't want things to get too dense or bogged down all at the same time. But the flawed algorithm that allowed the bad data, the erroneous angle of attack information to be received as valid by the flight computers, was interesting to me. Apparently, any spike in bad angle of attack data from an Adaru set off a 1.2 second period in the flight computer where it would retain an old angle of attack value that it considered valid prior to the spike. The flight computer gets a spike of bad angle of attack data and says, hey, this is weird. I don't trust these unusual values. You're on a timeout, Adaru, because I don't trust your info. The flaw in the algorithm that no one had considered until Flight 72 is that if another bad data spike happens immediately as the 1.2 second period ends, the flight computer takes this new bad data and automatically accepts it as valid. What do you think about that, Tess? It's kind of like I tell you a lie You immediately know that it's not true, so you disregard it for 1.2 seconds later. But after that period of time, I can tell you any lie I want, and you just automatically believe it. Yeah, it just goes to show that persistence is everything when you're (laughs) telling lies, eh? Apparently so. (laughs) The plane used for Flight 72 is still out there flying the friendly skies right now. The interior of the plane was repaired, and it's part of the Qantas fleet. It's now almost 17 years old. It has GE aviation engines and was manufactured in France. Just a few days ago, it flew to Melbourne to Auckland and back. On June 26th and 27th, it flew from Melbourne to Hong Kong and back. So it's still out there chugging along. Well, good to know it's still chugging. Yeah. 
One thing I learned during the research for this crash that I'm sure many of you already know, but I didn't, is that angle of attack is different from an airplane's pitch angle. Did you know that, Tess? I did not. I didn't know it. I always thought they were the same thing, but I was wrong. Angle of attack is a measurement of the vertical angle of a wing relative to airflow, whereas pitch angle is the angle of the aircraft in relation to the horizon. Ah, okay. Thank you. Well, I think that's going to do it for uh, Qantas Flight 72. Tess, you want to hear a few stories in the world of airline news? Sure, Michael. The Seattle Times had an excellent story pointed out to us by Captain Sullivan in regards to the Boeing MAX 8. The European Aviation Safety Agency, Transport Canada, and the FAA have all communicated to Boeing that they desire further modifications to the Boeing MAX 8 to ensure the safety of the MAX planes in the future. Boeing says that it has already addressed their issues with MCAS, a system that originally used information from only one angle of attack sensor before triggering protective action. Apparently, Boeing updated MCAS software to use information from two angle of attack sensors, hoping this would satisfy regulators. Well, evidently, it didn't, because the regulation agencies are now asking Boeing to install three angle of attack sensors. This third sensor could be a synthetic sensor. Boeing nixed the idea of a third sensor when developing the MAX planes because this would have required costly simulator training for pilots, costs they were looking to avoid for the airlines. Secondly, after looking over the accident reports of the two MAX crashes and observing the distracting and overwhelming amount of alarms and alerts that the pilots had to deal with, the agencies have asked Boeing to come up with a design change for warnings that is more streamlined and pilot-friendly. Lastly, Transport Canada wants Boeing to come up with an easy process for pilots to turn off their stick shaker stall warning system if it's deemed to be clearly erroneous. A false reading from an angle of attack sensor can set off the stick shaker. And when looking over the accident report to Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, the stick shaker was active for the entire six-minute flight, leading to more confusion for the pilots. So, Tess, seems like Boeing is still bogged down with trying to get these MAX planes back up in the sky. Are you happy these agencies are finally stepping in and forcing Boeing to make their planes safer? Definitely. I think all those suggestions are great. They should have three sensors. They should have an alarm system that's, I think it should be like strobe lights. Like instead of anything ringing or auditory, it should just be like flashing lights. Yeah, send the pilots into a seizure. <laughs> That's what I knew. Now, I feel like Boeing is doing in 2020 the work that they probably should have done a decade ago. It seems like they the most cringeworthy aspect of this article when I read it was that the Dreamliner, a Boeing Dreamliner, already has a synthetic airspeed system. And Boeing didn't include it in their MAX planes because it would see, be seen as a negative, that pilots would have to undergo simulator training, and this might be an added cost to airlines. Seems like they just cared more about cost than safety. Yeah, definitely. We talked about that a lot with the MAX 8, was like how fast the rollout was and mm-hmm. how they didn't want to have to train pilots with simulators. Yeah. I feel like Boeing's a never-ending summer school, basically. They had an awful year of school turned in piss-poor papers, didn't study for tests, and now they keep on revising their work and turning it into the teacher for a passing grade, and the teacher is just looking at it being like, not good enough. Yeah, it's kind of like the teacher already knows they're dealing with a bad student. Yeah, <laughs> and it's summer school, and the kid thinks, I can just turn in whatever, and the teacher's going to get, you know, finally exhausted and just pass me. But hopefully that's not the attitude these agencies have towards Boeing. Yeah, exactly. The teacher's like, I know what you did last summer and I'm not letting you get away with it this summer. Yeah, you have to put in some effort and turn in something good. 
Italy's National Civil Aviation Authority has announced a ban on all overhead bins for all planes arriving or departing Italian airports. So no carry-on luggage is allowed while flying into or out of Italy. The idea is that all passengers will check their luggage and there will be less time during boarding or deplaning where passengers are clogging up aisles, opening themselves up to close interaction with one another. Because this is a government order, airlines are not charging passengers to check their bags. What do you think, Tess? Smart move by Italy, or is it a tyrannical demand trampling on the freedom of passengers to awkwardly wheel around or carry on luggage through Italian airports? No, I think it's great. I think all airlines should do that. I mean, I love bringing a carry-on bag. I tend to avoid checking bags, but in these circumstances, I think the less that you're carrying, the better. Yeah, I feel like uh, I like the efficiency of it. Maybe it's the German in me, but I like the idea of... A hundred people getting on a plane and we're all just walking in there and sitting down. And when the plane's done and we're deboarding, we all just stand up and walk off and nobody's fumbling with uh, oversized back- baggage. Yeah, I, I was saying this earlier, but I, I feel like I'm the type of passenger that brings like a garbage bag of goods. <laughs> <laughs> You're just shoving that garbage bag in the overhead bin. Yeah, it's it's just embarrassing. I found a list of wacky airlines that are now defunct that I think Tess is going to find interesting. First, there's Pet Airways, an airline exclusively for pets. Passengers flew on the airline starting in 2009 until the airline went under in 2011. Airline staff gave pets pre-boarding walks and bathroom breaks. Each pet was checked on during the flight every 15 minutes. All pets flew in the main cabin, not in the cargo hold, and were well cared for. Unfortunately, business for pets looking to fly solo never really took off, and Pet Airways no longer exists. I heard it went out of business because they couldn't fill business class. There weren't enough pets willing to pay the premium. (laughs) Not enough top dogs flying, apparently. (laughs) Uh, Next, we have Smokers Express, an airline for smokers only. Apparently, you could light them up left and right in the friendly skies when flying Smokers Express. They even sold memberships where you get free cigarettes and lottery scratcher tickets on board. What do you think about that? Wow, debaucherous. I definitely wouldn't want to be the only non-smoker on that flight. Yeah, I feel like uh, on Smokers Express, the bathroom must have caught on fire every two seconds. And I also feel like if you showed up and you didn't have a cigarette, you could easily bum one. Yeah, definitely. It's the place to be if you are looking to bum a cigarette. I think scratcher tickets on a plane sounds great. Th- those should be like a new thing. Everybody gets a scratcher ticket when it's you get on. something to do. I would probably be in the hole, though, if they were available on my flights because I'd just be nervously scratching tickets. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. One other uh, airline is the Lord's Airline. They would show religious movies, no alcohol was served on board, and the Bible and Torah were stored in the back of each seat. So you could read up on Abraham at 37,000 feet. Mm, That one's perfect for me. I always get religious when I fly. Yeah, I find I pray all the time when I'm flying. So I think Uh, we'd all fit on, you know, Lord's Airline. Definitely. The no alcohol policy is the only kind of glaring red flag for me. Bit of a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Lastly, we have MGM Grand Air, an airline where the entire passenger cabin was first class. Only 33 passengers could be on each flight, and there were six flight attendants, so you had a one to six ratio of flight attendants to passengers. The airline flew only between Los Angeles and New York, and a round-trip ticket would set you back three grand. That was back in the 1990s as well. What do you think, Tess? Would you see yourself as an MGM grand passenger? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't even want to know that Coach exists. I can't even have them on my 
airplane. That's how <laughs> high class I am. I was a bit disappointed because when I saw MGM Grand, I thought it was going to be like the hotel in Las Vegas. I thought it was going to be like roulette at 37,000 feet. And I was mm. like, that sounds fun. I would be into that. Oh, I'm seeing a theme here with your scratch tickets and your Russian roulette. Yeah, I like the rush of gambling. <laughs> Lastly, there are minor rumblings about a proposed bill in the U.S. Congress that would give Americans a $4,000 tax credit to use towards travel each of the next three years in an attempt to boost the sagging travel industry that's been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. Airline tickets, hotel costs, food and entertainment would all be acceptable. Travel would have to take place inside the United States. You'd have to front yourself the money and wait for it to come back to you in your tax credit each year. Tess, would you like four grand a year just to spend on travel? Absolutely. You don't have to twist my arm. I think I'd like that money, you know, post-pandemic. Encouraging people to go out in the world and travel right now during the pandemic. I don't know about that one. Yeah, but as soon as restrictions lift, I'm going to be on the first flight to Hawaii. So Sounds sweet. I hope I'm with you. <laughs> well, I think that's going to do it for the 26th episode of PCPC. Thanks to Captain Kevin Sullivan for talking with us and saving 315 human beings, including himself. It's great getting to talk and meet with him. I hope you all check out No Man's Land that's on Amazon. Thank you to Tess Andrade. Tess, you want to say anything to the people? I love you guys. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for befriending us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll have a new episode for you soon. Yeah, we're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. We're on Patreon at Plane Crash Pod. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. We have an official website at planecrashpod.com. Do you see a theme here? Oh, I'm seeing an overarching theme. And just to throw you all a curveball on Instagram, we're at plane crash podcast. Oh, you're confusing, Michael. <laughs> Stop sending us mixed messages. I hope you're all taking some deep breaths and taking care of yourselves mentally out there. This pandemic is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. Hope you're taking care of your communities, wearing a mask talking with your friends and loved ones over the phone, working hard on whatever it is you're doing, whether that's being a student or a driver or a computer programmer. I hope you guys have a great July and we'll get you another episode as soon as we can. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.